0: Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arhato Samma Sambudassa. Tassa Bhagavato Arhato Samma Sambudassa. Namah Tassa Bhagavato Arhato Samma Sambudassa. Therefore, bhikkhus. Any kind of form whatsoever, whether past, future or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, all should be seen as it really is with the correct wisdom thus, Netang mama, this is not mine. Neso Hamasmi, this I am not. And Nameso Tati, this is not myself. So welcome to the third talk and the characteristics of existence. Um, as Bante Silananda hinted to the other day, they uh they gave the hardest talk to the newbie. <laughs> but uh that's okay. So um I wanted to start out by talking definitions, right? This is there's two aspects of the Buddhist teachings that are the absolute hardest to understand. And actually by the end of this talk I'm going to talk about both of them. And The most important thing to understand is the way way I've crafted this talk and the suttas I've used is to try to, the easiest and best way to kind of really help you to understand anatta as much as you can intellectually. The problem with anatta is that you actually don't understand it just intellectually. That's why there's lots of confusion and lots of, you know, oh, my mind, I can't understand this, right? So even though I'm going to go over all of these kind of things with you guys and talk to you about the de- the word and the definition and all these kind of things, at the end of this talk, you're not going to know anatta any better. <laughs> at the end of this talk, you might be able to understand a little bit um, or develop a foundation of understanding so that you can experience it. Right? So it's important to understand it intellectually, but to also know that you can't really actually understand it intellectually. You can only understand it experientially. So that's the important thing to understand when we get started. So let's talk about definitions. Anatta. If you're familiar with the Pali language at all, or you've done some chanting, um, you might understand that to negate something you put an A in front of it. So Anatta. So the word that we have to define is Atta A T T A. The A N in front of Anatta is the negation. So you maybe have heard Atta is the Pali. The Sanskrit word is Atman. If you're familiar with Hinduism or understand the Sanskrit, then you've, that word might sound a little bit more familiar, the Atman. So we have to think about the time of the Buddha. In the time of the Buddha, he comes on the scene, and there's this Brahmanic tradition. Which forms a lot of the framework of modern Hinduism, right? We have this um, tradition that Brahma, Brahma is the creator god, right? And we have what's called Atta,
1: right?
0: And the goal of our Atta is to be reunited with Brahma, right? So we have this understanding. What is an Atta? Well, the definition. A soul, right? A soul that according to general belief at the time was something that was permanent, was something that was unchangeable, and was something that was not affected by sorrow. So you have this this culture, this belief at the time that we have this Atman. And in the Upanishads it's described as this like little light being, like this little being, and the being is inside you. And it, when you go to sleep or when you die, the being goes away. And I guess when you wake up, the being comes back. Right? So there's this concept of this Atta, or this Atman. right? This permanent, unchanging soul. Right? And the Buddha comes along and says, Ah, not Atta, Anatta. Okay? The Buddha comes along and says, You know that whole, you know, little glowy dude that you think that's in your body? No. (laughs) No such thing. No Atta. No permanent soul. And you know, I had for years, I had heard Anatta defined as not self or no self. And I had not, until I came here and I heard Bhante Silananda talk, and I heard him define anatta as soullessness. And at first I was like, well, that kind of sounds silly. I mean, I've been hearing all these years people say not self or no self. But now, interestingly, enough years later, I've kind of come to the... um, Well, you can look in the definition. If you look up the Pali-English dictionary and you look at anatta, you'll see soulless. So it is in the definition. But actually, I think... Especially for people who are not, weren't raised Buddhist or who are coming to Buddhism as converts, I think um, that understanding it as soulless makes a bit more sense. And let me explain why. Because when we have this kind of, especially if you're from the West, right? You have this kind of inbuilt, <clears throat> if you're Judeo Christian background, all that kind of stuff, you have this inbuilt, like, <clears throat> this is me this permanent soul i'm just inhabiting this body thing but there's a me not too dissimilar from the little atman dude right there's this me who has you know and this me is going to go to heaven or to hell at the end or things like that this is my soul the soul is this is the soul is me everything that's me all the, the, to the little nth degree this is my soul right and we use that word You know, in all kinds of various contexts. Like, they stole my soul. All of these kind of contexts, right? And when we think of a soul in a Western Judeo-Christian kind of context, we think of this like permanence. We think of this everlastingness, right? And so that's why I think that it actually, it actually should be used more. Because... No self and not self gets confusing. Actually, we're going to talk about that a little bit later. Because people are like, what, what, is there a difference between no self and not self and this and that and all these things? But when you understand what the Buddha is coming at, the Buddha's being in this tradition of there is this Atman, there is this Atta. And the Buddha, like he did for many things, came in and flipped it around. He says, no, anatta, soullessness, no permanent Everlasting, unchangeable being. Anatta. Right? So, when we understand that, okay, now we have a little bit of a basis of where we're coming from. Right? We understand the context of why the Buddha is coming out and saying what he's saying. Because right? he's going against this view, this feeling and we all have it. I we mean, really look inside, we have this, this innate feeling that I'm me. Right? Who else could I be? Right? There's this me in here. This is me. I'm named this, and this this is what I like. This is what I dislike. And um, you know, I like this sports team, and I don't like that sports team. All these kind of things. That's me. Right. But the meditation actually starts to have you question all of that, right? That's why anatta is something that has to be experienced, not understood intellectually. So we understand, starting out, that this is, anatta is the negation of anything that's permanent, any kind of permanent, unchanging soul or self, if you want to use that word, right? Right? that whatever I am now, I'm going to be the same in the next life and the same in the next life. Or even if I'm an animal in the next life, but there's still, there's still a little Joe in that animal or something like that, right? There's still a little this in there, right? We, we, even, we can't even like think about the fact that we could be something totally different in the next life because we're so attached to this body and this life and this is who I am and all these kind of things, Right? So I wanted to start out, Bhanteji mentioned it, and it is the second discourse that the Buddha ever made. It's called the Anattalakana Sutta, the discourse on the characteristics of soullessness, or not self. I'm not going to go through every word of the sutta here, I'm just going to kind of give you a general summary. But this is pretty much the place, if you want to start to understand and learn about Anatta, this is the place to do it. This is, you can see it in the red books and also you can uh, obviously I'm going to you know, go through a bunch of suttas in this hour or so that I'm going to talk um, so anything that I talk about I'm going to put on the board so that you guys can um, you know, look at later So Buddha starts out form is not self right? this is a Buddha kind of putting his arguments forward right? <laughs> if form were self, this form would not lead to affliction. Right? Going back to the whole the belief in the atta, that the atta, the soul, is not afflicted by sorrow. So it would not lead to affliction. And it would be possible to have it to say, let my form be thus. Let my form not be thus. Right? And you think about this, this. is something that I pondered for a long time. And I still do. And it's like, well, what does he mean by this? Let my form be thus. Let my form be, not be thus. And I'm thinking, like, we can do a lot of things with our bodies. Like, we can really kind of, you know, we can tell our bodies to do this and tell our bodies to do that. You can get really strong or really graceful or whatever. You can do all kinds of things. But then I thought I understood. It's like the Buddha is saying... You know, I'm like having a conversation with the Buddha and he's like oh yeah you're right but can you do that when it counts and I was like oh yeah that's what it is okay? when it counts <clears throat> can you tell your body not to get sick can you tell your body not to grow old can you tell your body not to die nope So you might have some power, you might have some, you know, control over this form, right? But when it really comes down to it, you cannot say, let my body be thus, let my body not be thus. You have no say in it whatsoever, right? Of course, you can, you, know, you can exercise and eat healthy and you know, increase your chances of living longer and all these kind of things. But in the end, you're still going to get sick. You're still going to grow old. You're still going to die. That's the nature of this form, right? So the Buddha is saying, if it were self, then you could say, let my form be thus. Let my form not be thus. But because, so he continues, but because form is anatta, not self, form leads to affliction and is not possible to have it a form, let my form be thus, let my form not be thus. So that's one of the Buddha's first arguments for not self. And of course, anytime you hear me say, let my form actually the Buddha is talking about all of the five aggregates. You've heard about the five aggregates a couple times during this retreat. You're going to hear about it more during this talk. <laughs> because actually the five aggregates play such a central role in all three of these characteristics of existence. <clears throat> so then, after giving his initial arguments, the Buddha does some questioning. He says, Is form nicha or Anitya? Permanent or impermanent? And of course the monastics say, Impermanent, Venerable Sir. Right, And then it says, Is what is anicca dukkha or sukha? You heard that word dukkha yesterday, right? Um, so you know what dukkha, <coughs> in this context, it can mean, uh, dukkha can mean unpleasant or suffering. It can have different contexts. Sukha means happiness, pleasantness. So the Buddha is asking, is this, this thing that's impermanent, is, is impermanence happiness? Is impermanence like pleasant or unpleasant? <laughs> is it suffering or not suffering? And of course they say, dukkha, venerable sir. So then the Buddha says, is what is impermanent, anicca suffering dukkha and subject to change viparanama, that's that rising and falling fit to be regarded as thus Netang mama naeso hamasmi nameto atati, right is this is me this is mine this is myself buddha is asking is that is that which is impermanent is that which is suffering and subject to change, fit to be me, myself, Atta. And of course the answer is, "No venerable sir." <laughs> right? <clears throat> so then the Buddha goes into this as one who sees in such a way that this form, this feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness, is anatta. They develop. Nibda, they developed disenchantment. Right? The Buddha <coughs> said that when he, he talked about in one sutta where when he was young and he had he was intoxicated with health, intoxicated with youth, intoxicated with life. Right? And <coughs> reflecting on all age sickness and death brought him broke that intoxication, right? Brought him to understanding. The reality, right? Having Nibida, disenchantment. So when you see, oh what am I so thrilled about? It's just this it's just the body. <laughs> Why is that I'm so attached to this body? Right? So then all of a sudden now it's you're disenchanted. It doesn't mean like you hate it, like ah oh, I hate now I hate this body. No. <clears throat> it just means that like you're not so enthralled with your body anymore or the bodies of other people. Right? <clears throat> and then once you develop Nibbida, then it's viraga, dispassion, right? and so such and so on until awakening. Right. So this was the second sutta. This is the second teaching that the Buddha gave to those first five, um, the five ascetics that he had uh, practiced with. The, and I think bhante G mentioned talked about this that in the first in the first um, the. Dhammachaka Bhavatana Sutta the first discourse one of them became awakened but at the end of this discourse all of them became awakened and then it ends with and then there were six arahants in the world right? <clears throat> so this is the power of understanding of reflecting and seeing oh, anatta this is not self this is not soul this is not me mine or myself, right? <clears throat> so, I wanted to now talk a little bit about, put anatta in, conf, in context with the other two. We saw the Buddha do it, but I wanted to explain a little bit. And I also wanted to add a little bit <clears throat> onto anatta, or um, anicca, so that, uh, to help make my point that's coming later on. So Bhante G, obviously, there's a reason why Bhante Sila said that Bhante Ji's, that's his favorite subject. Bhante G loves impermanence. He always talks about impermanence. That's his favorite thing to talk about. So obviously you you got the full range of impermanence by listening to him talk. But I wanted to talk about something from my own understanding um, of impermanence, of this word anicca, right? I remember as a 2 3 years ago I was looking up the definition. It's amazing what you can find when you actually look up the definition of these Pali words. <laughs> and of course, you know, impermanence and, and you know, I've, like impermanence to me has always beca- it's, it's become such like a buzzword. It's almost kind of like has lost its meaning, right? <clears throat> but I saw that there's another definition for anicca under impermanence. And its definition is not stable. Not stable or unstable. And that really changed. There's been a couple times where understanding that a word has different meanings has actually changed insight inside of myself. So never underestimate checking out the different meanings, right? Because sometimes things click that you never thought they would click, but they click. And so, the Buddha is saying that there is nothing in existence, nothing that is conditioned. The only thing that is not conditioned is Nibbana. So there is nothing that is conditioned that is stable. There is nothing that is conditioned that is dependable. There is nothing that is conditioned that you can hold on to and grasp and it not slip through your fingers. Right? There's absolutely nothing. Go through the list. Your job? No. Your significant other, marriage, spouse, however you want to call it? No. Your body? No. Your car? No. <clears throat> There's nothing. There's absolutely nothing. Right? There's nothing that you can hold on to and say, you stay this way. If you can't say that, you can't say that to your body. Buddha is just going over. We can say, let this be thus. Let this not be thus. No such thing. Because it's anicca, it's unstable, it's impermanent. You cannot grasp it and want it to be this way. Do you know what happens when you grasp something that's unstable and want it to be a certain way? You create your own suffering. That's dukkha. Right? So it is through our grasping of this, things that are unstable, undependable, that we create our own suffering. Right? And if everything in existence, everything that is conditioned, is unstable. Is yourself a, an exception? <laughs> right? Is this thing, that, this is me, is that an exception? Buddha says, no, of course not. And it, it follows logically, doesn't it? <clears throat> if the first, if the first, if the first statement is, everything is impermanent, everything is unstable, and then you go to, oh, no, but there's this permanent self, this permanent thing, no. <laughs> logically, And All of that also goes away. It's unstable. It's undependable. There's nothing that you can depend on. I make a joke these days that the the irony of going for refuge to the Buddha and the Dhamma and the Sangha is that you're going for refuge to the fact that there's no refuge. So, and I remember having this, this kind of vision in my mind of me... Being like a like a ship survivor on the ocean, and trying to grasp on like floats them like floating pieces of wood to hold myself over the water to like so I don't would stop from drowning, and every time I grasped onto something, it broke, and I went back down. And I, I just kept doing it, and I realized, well, that's that's what I'm doing. I'm trying to find something that's stable, something that's permanent. And every time I put my weight on it, my, put my hopes on it, put my everything on it, it breaks. Right? <clears throat> and interestingly enough, <clears throat> I just recently <clears throat> found a sutra where the Buddha says something very similar. Right? It's, a, it's a simile. The uh, Buddha is it's the simile of the river. And so the Buddha says, imagine there is a river and there's a person on the river being swept away. And every end there would be different kinds of grasses and limbs and trees. He lists all these things. Kusa grass and Kasi grass and all these kinds of things. And then <clears throat> the person were to try to grab that grass to stop from being swept away. And then the grass would rip out and they would keep going. And so they're just trying to grasp at something to keep them from going down this river, from going to calamity. So the Buddha says they would grasp at this and then it would break and they would lead to calamity, right? <clears throat> so the Buddha is saying, and so the Buddha says, it's just as the same as this. This form is myself. This perception is myself. This feeling is myself. This intention is myself. This consciousness is myself. Right? So the Buddha, the Buddha spoke about us grabbing on to these five aggregates in the same way as somebody trying, who's going towards calamity and is trying to use these things to help him. But they keeps breaking. Right? There's, no, there's no nice, stable, firm branch that you can hold on to. Right? Because we're grasping towards all of these things that are unstable, that are impermanent, that are, cannot give you what you want. Right? There's a wonderful quote from a monk called Ajahn Brahm, one of my, the most important quotes of my early days in Buddhism. and He says, suffering is asking from the world what it cannot give you. Right? So we want things to be permanent. We want things to be stable. We want things to be all in such a way. We don't want to grow old. We don't want to get sick. We don't want to die. We don't want any of this stuff to change. I like me. I don't want. I don't want to change, right? Not many people say that. Some people do. You know all these kind of things, right? <clears throat> or I want this part to change, but not this part, right? We have, we have all these things. This is what we try to we try to control and say. Okay, this is this, and then. Life laughs at us and, you know, we're thrown in a river. <laughs> right? Trying to grasp, trying to control, trying to, this is this, this is this, right? So, this is a very important simile to understand, right? To understand this not-self. Right? We're going to go into, um, after one last small simile, we're going to go into understanding what is identity. There's another, this actually is a much more famous simile um, in terms of not self um, that the Buddha, I've heard this many many times before I heard this other one and so the Buddha says, suppose people were to just come into these woods, this woods at Savati and start taking away grass and leaves and limbs and everything, would you say, oh no, stop them they are taking away myself <laughs> and the Buddha says and they say, no, of course not Well, so the Buddha, the Buddha says, this is, such is the same with The aggregates, such as saying, oh no, they are taking away myself. (laughs) Because this is not why no, and he said, Why would you why would you say that? Because those leaves are not myself. Right? So anything that we say is myself, me, mine, myself, then when it's taken away, suffering. If it's not me, mine, myself, oh it's just a bunch of leaves. Who cares? Oh, that per- I don't care about that person. You can take them away. <laughs> right? So it's that, it's that attachment to this is me. This is mine. This is mine. Right? This is myself. That is, when we do that, that's when we create suffering. When we don't, you don't care about the leaves and everything that's on the ground. Leaves. Unless you know, they catch fire or something, then you have to worry about it. But, but otherwise, it's just leaves. Right? Could you imagine thinking about this body and this mind just like the same you would think about the leaves? It's just a body. It's just a mind. Right? I can't yet. <laughs> All right? I'm, I have glimpses of it, but I, you know, that's actually understanding, not self. And you don't understand fully not self until you're awakened, so that's the way it is. <coughs> now, what is identity? Okay. Do you know what the most commonly asked question in all of Buddhism is, at least for people who are coming to Buddhism who don't. Know, you know what? I've heard this. I've heard this question asked probably six or seven dozen times, and I've answered it at least a couple dozen times now in the four years that I've been sharing Dhamma. People ask, well, if there's a, And I bet you somebody probably already wrote it. They won't have to... <laughs> <laughs> People ask, well, if there's no permanent soul, then what gets reborn? Right? What is identity? What is this? And so <clears throat> the Buddha is asked by um, Sariputta, identity, identity. What is identity? Right? And the Buddha's answer Dukkha <laughs> Do you remember the definition of Dukkha? Birth is Dukkha Old age is Dukkha Or aging is Dukkha right? Death is Dukkha Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair Yada 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 In brief The five aggregates subject to clinging Is Dukkha What do you think identity is? The five aggregates subject to clinging. The Buddha is asked, what is identity? Form subject to clinging. Feeling subject to clinging. Perceptions subject to clinging. Mental formation subject to clinging. Consciousness subject to clinging. The very fact that we cling to these aggregates as an identity is suffering. Suffering. That's identity. That's Buddha's answer. What is this identity? Five aggregates subject to clinging. Pretty shocking, huh? The five aggregates subject to clinging. So your identity is in itself tied up with suffering. It is built on dukkha. It is dukkha. It's pretty... uh, (laughs) pretty tough thing. Huh? But I like me. <laughs> How can I be suffering? <laughs> I do really good things. <laughs> All right? But this is this understanding that the Buddha is connecting identity view, identity with the five aggregates. right? And we don't just have five aggregates. An awakened being just has five aggregates. Because they've let go of their five aggregates. They're no longer clinging. They're not subject to clinging anymore. They've abandoned clinging. So they're simply just five aggregates. You ever meet one of these, uh, one of these people like in Buddhist circles where they go around and they're like, these five aggregates are hungry. These five <laughs> aggregates are thirsty. I, I, I have honestly met people who say that and I was like, oh my God. <laughs> well, I, like, I mean they're not exactly wrong, <laughs> but you know this is called this is called missing um convention right even the Buddha said i' <laughs> just because he didn't believe that there's an i doesn't mean he used- he didn't use convention right, so we understand these five aggregates right the five aggregates that are so important in understanding the three characteristics of existence right but we have aggregates subject to clinging awakened beings don't so we have identity awakened beings don't right they don't have aggregates subject to clinging they have abandoned identity <clears throat> now the buddha is asked well How does identity come to be? One takes form as self. There's a whole list. Because you could tell some people were really trying to lawyer this, trying to find a self. One takes form as self. Or self in form. Or for... I don't even remember all of them. But it's like all... uh, Self-possessing form. Form as in self. Or self as in form. Right? They're trying to figure out. Yeah, there's a self somewhere. Right? There might not be a self in in this arm, but there's got to be a self. So, <laughs> right? The Buddha is very clear across the board. <laughs> that any kind of attaching to the aggregates as self is how identity comes to be. Right? You're born. Oh, this is myself. Okay. And. Right? Uh, your parents give you a name. Right? Oh, this is me. Right? and You can see, it's interesting. Like in the Buddha, when the Buddha sees his past lives, he says, in this past life, this was who I was. This was my clan. This was what I liked. This is what I disliked. This was my pleasure. This was my pain. All of these things, over and over and over and over again. Right? He's able to see all of these things. Right? And all of this, regarded as, Self. Before becoming awakened, right? this form is me. This form is my. I am creating this identity. You know, <clears throat> there's two great words that uh, I really love in the Pali. One is manyati and the other is papancha. Manyati means to um, conceive, right? To create. One, I, I think, I think the Buddha. I haven't confirmed this yet, but I think the Buddha does some, some, uh, I don't know what the word you'd call, like double-meaning joking when he uses this word because there's another way you can define manyati, imagination, right? You are imagining, you are creating, you're conceiving. The other is papancha. Papancha means to proliferate. So you create and then you proliferate. Right? and the buddha says the one who conceives mara has one and one who does not conceive mara cannot find right so in conceiving in that creation we create our suffering right but we build up we create, you know i don't this simil- this doesn't always work for everybody but i was a big video gamer and especially, I used to love doing like Dungeons and Dragons and things like that. And you create your character, who you're going to be, your valiant hero, right? And so you create their, all their stats and their backstory and all these kind of things. And it clicked on me a couple years ago. I was like, oh, that's what we do. That's what, that's what this is. That's what your, your driver's license says, such and such, 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 such. You're a character. <laughs> You've been created. <laughs> Not just by you. But by the you know, parents of people around you the society, all these things. That's what we do. We create. I like this. Like I remember when I was young, because I didn't outwardly get angry, I would be like, I developed this I papanched and conceived this thing that I'm not an angry person. Right? And then years later I'm in with my therapist, and my therapist says, You do know that sarcasm is anger, right? and i'm like oh i'm the most sarcastic person i know <laughs> and then i realized oh i have lots of anger right but i created this this character that i wasn't the angry person even when there would be fights and arguments and i'd try to calm everybody down and my sister's nicknamed me switzerland and all these kind of things <laughs> and i would be like you know so i'm not an angry person yeah there's anger in there <laughs> there's no doubt there's anger in there right but so we create and we build this character. Right? If you if you're not a video gamer, you can think of it like a movie character or whatever, like you're writing a story. It's the same thing. Right? We create and we build this. And this is how this comes to be. This is me. This form is me. This feeling is me. Right? Identity view comes to be. And actually the Buddha says that uh, all of the various views stem from identity view. Right? First there's identity view, then there's, like, you, know, you know, in the suttas, there's 62 kinds of views. You know? And uh, the world is infinite, the world is, is finite. You know, the, the, the soul, you know, there's a soul, there's not a soul, there's a, this, you exist after death, you don't exist after All of these things, all of that stems from the initial beginning of Identity once identity is gone once that's been abandoned then there's no need for all these views all of them have been abandoned and so the buddha there's a wonderful sutta if there's one thing that you remember from everything that i said you remember this sutta it's called bahara sutta the burden the buddha says i shall teach you of the burden I shall teach you of the burden, the burden carrier, picking up of the burden, laying down of the burden. What's the burden? We've been talking about it. The burden is suffering. The burden is the five uh, aggregates subject to clinging. That's the burden. Who is the carrier of the burden? The person, the identity. You are picking up the burden like the mighty atlas holding the world over the, the shoulder. Sound familiar? <laughs> right, lay down the burden right? so you're picking up the burden you're picking up the five aggregates subject to clinging and that's what the um, picking up the burden is craving laying down the burden is nibbana or nirvana letting go right? so this simile of the burden and picking it up and laying it down. Right? So every time you sit down to meditate, if you remember, lay down the burden. At least for a little bit, you can lay it down. But then your mind gets all scared. I'm not ready to lay the burden down for good yet. <laughs> I like all this stuff. right? And then you're like, OK, OK. And the first time, the guided meditation I taught you guys is what I practice. It's what I developed in my own practice over years. And I remember the first time I was like, "Okay, Jay, lay down the burden." And the, my mind's like, "I don't want. It. I'm too scared." And I said, "It's okay. You can pick it back up later." Oh, okay. If that's okay, then yeah, sure. <laughs> as long as I can pick up my suffering again, <laughs> and I'm like, "You're not ready to let go yet, are you?" I guess not. <laughs> right? So with this simile, this shows you: this is what we do. We pick up the burden. We don't know any other way. We don't know how to do something otherwise. And it takes a lot to learn how to let go of the burden. We're not there yet. And so the Buddha says, whatever is not yours, abandon it. What is not yours? Form is not yours. Feeling is not yours. Perception is not yours. Mental formations, consciousness is not yours. Whatever is not yours, abandon it. That will be for your long-term benefit and good. Whatever is not yours, abandon it. That's basically everything. Could you let go of everything? That is... There's nothing that, to the Buddha, is yours. Everything seen as itself. Not me, not mine, not myself. So, whatever is not yours, abandon it. And not only form, feeling, mental uh, perception, etc., but also... The I is not yours. I consciousness is not yours. Um, Forms are not yours. When they say internal and external, that's traditionally meant to mean internal is you, external is outside. So, like your form is not self. External, that form is not self, right? That's internal, external, right? So, all of these things abandon. When you abandon them, they will, will be for your benefit for a long time. The, the Buddha is encouraging you to lay down the burden permanently. <laughs> but until you can do it permanently, then you, you know, do it for a little bit. And it's nice and free. And then you're like, okay, now it's time to pick it back up because I want to go enjoy my Haagen-Dazs or go see a movie or whatever. Right? <laughs> or really, or like myself again. Like this body, you know, all these kind of things. So, <clears throat> this next sutta that I want to talk about is actually a very famous in terms of anatta. It's the wanderer Vachagota. He comes to the Buddha and he says to the Buddha, Is there self? Buddha doesn't answer. By the way, that's a, that's a traditional Buddha answer for a lot of questions. <laughs> The Buddha does not answer. Then the Buddha, then Vatshagoda says, Is there no self? Buddha doesn't answer. Vachagoda is like, Okay. And then he just walks away. And then Ananda, the Buddha's attendant, comes up to him and says, well, Why didn't you answer? And Buddha says, If I were to say that, if I were, when he asked, Is there a self? And I were to say, Yes, there's a self. Then that would be siding with the uh, the Brahmins and the ascetics who are eternalists. Right. So two of the when you think of when you hear like the middle way, the Buddha the, the Buddha talks about the middle way between two, two extremes. One of those is eternalism, so it's like permanent soul that goes to heaven, all these kind of things. The other one is annihilism, so like modern materialism, like. Nothing, you just die. I mean, when you die, there's nothing left. So the Buddha's middle ground is between those two extremes. <clears throat> so he said, if I were to say that there is a self, if, if I were to say yes when he asked that question, then I would be siding with those who believe in eternalism. If I were to say, uh, when he asked, is there not a self, then I would be siding with those who were nihilist, annihilationist. And then he says, if I were to say, when he asked if there's a self, and I were to say, yes, there's a self, then would that be consistent with my whole, you know that whole anatta lakana, the whole discourse on not self, would that be consistent with that? And Ananda's like, no. And then the, the, the best part is, if I were to, if he asked, is there not a self, I were to say there's not a self, then he would get confused. And then he would say, oh, It appears this self that I thought I had, I don't longer have anymore. (laughs) Right? So the, the, the Buddha decided in that to say, to not answer. Right? So the Buddha technically never says there is a self or there isn't a self. Right? This is where we get into this not self, no self. Right? What I would say from my understanding of the suttas and from my experience is when you, the Buddha is never giving a, like a, what would you call it, um, like a universal answer, right? He's pointing towards your experience. He's saying, find a self in your experience. Is this finger self? Right? Is this body self? Like you're looking, when you're looking deeply, that's what he's saying. So this is why insti- uh, if, if I'm not going to use the term soulless, I'm going to use not-self, because it's saying this, not-self. This, not-self. That, not-self. Right? If you're looking deeply at everything, you're not going to find a self. Right? You're not going to find a self in these things. Right? Even a, a sotapanna, somebody who becomes the first level of awakening, they've abandoned sakayaditi, which is identity view, but they haven't, ident- they haven't abandoned the conceit, I am. Only an awakened being has done that. Right? So there's still this little kernel of, I exist. I am. Right? Um, so, when, to, when you look at anatta, when you're trying to examine, you want to examine it in your experience. Right? Where do you see, you know, you might say, there is a self. It's it's constructed by the neurons in my brain. Okay. Okay. Well, look. <laughs> see, can you find it? You know, like to, this. These are this this thing between not self and no self. Because you can see from this. So the Buddha never answered. Never said categorically there is no self. Right? But what he did say is, if you look, if you try to see something, and you try to, if you attach to it as self, then suffering. So you investigate this in your own experience. <clears throat> this thought that arises. Is this myself? right? You investigate that. And there's three conceits that the Buddha says. The first conceit is I am greater than. You understand that. Yeah, that sounds kind of conceited. Of course, when we, think, when we hear conceit in terms of this, we're not talking about, like, conceited, like modern Western vernacular. We're talking about this conceit that I am greater, right? Then the next conceit, I am lesser. Yeah, you can understand. Yeah, I'm not lesser than... And so then you think, but then the next one is, I am equal to. Yeah, like, well, that's a... How is that a conceit too, right? The first time I read that years ago, it kind of shocked me. I'm like, what is he talking about here? Right? But from which perspective are you making any of those judgments? From the perspective of a self. If there's no identity, there's no self, you can't say, I am greater, I am lesser, I am equal. Right? So the Buddha says, thus, I am superior, I am equal, or I am inferior. What is that due to, apart from not seeing things as they really are? the Buddha is saying if you, if you have these conceits then you're not seeing things as they are. Okay? And so the last section I wanted to go over is the cross section between the two hardest things. Anatta and dependent origination. You might know the story of uh, in the suttas where Ananda the Buddha's um, you know, a disciple, the Buddha's uh, attendant, goes up to the Buddha and says, "You know, this dependent origination is is deep, but I understand it. It's pre- it's not that bad." Right? And the Buddha says, "Do not say so, Ananda, for it is deep and it appears deep." Right. So basically, you have this Ananda, you know, who we call like the everyman. Right. So he always makes you know messes up and does all kinds of stuff in the sutras, and the Buddha's like. Wrong, Ananda. (laughs) So he says, no, do not say that because it is deep and it appears deep. And so there's a sutta in the Samyutta Nikaya, again, I'll put it on the board, where somebody comes up to the Buddha and he says, who feels? And the Buddha gives the best answer in all of the suttas, at least for me, because when I first heard it, I laughed out loud really hard. When asked who feels, the Buddha says, Invalid question. He <laughs> says, When the arising of contact comes the arising of feeling. With the cessation of craving comes the cessation of feeling. Right? So if somebody asks him a question about self, identity, what's his answer? Dependent origination. That's his answer. Right? Right? you look at dependent origination you see how it arises from ignorance arises sankara, consciousness etc 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 all of these things you can see how that arises right and so when you see this connection right this self this identity is the five aggregates right this identity is conditioned right this body, these aggregates are conditioned it's all conditioned it's all, what would you say, processes this who feels there's no who, it's a process it's dependent origination with the arising of this comes the arising of that with the cessation of this comes the cessation of that that's the Buddha's answer when you ask who feels who thinks? Who does this? Who does that? Right? The answer is that. Right? The answer is, so when somebody, when you say, well, what are we then? I think it's not too far off of a, uh, of a jump to say, we is a process. Right? Conditionality, right? Dependent origination. We, we think of it as kind of like uh, one thing leads to one thing right, cause and effect, but really what it is, is a spider web of innumerable innumerable amounts of things leads to a spider web of innumerable amounts of things, there's no way that you can just see it as one-to-one, right, so there's so many processes, so many things being conditioned that are arising and ceasing, arising and ceasing, rising and ceasing, right, that are <clears throat> anicca, right? And can you try to, you're trying to grab that? Trying, oh, uh, no, don't go away. You're trying to grab all these things, all these processes going and saying, okay, this is me, and this is how it should be, and this is how it's going to always be, and you better stay just like that. You can't even do that to a pet. You'd be like, no, you stay right there, right? <laughs> and then they're just going to go away and go do all kinds of things, Right? But that's what we want to do. We want to grasp, somehow grasp this process, these processes, and try to, you know, focus them and control them down to this is me. This is myself. Right? I wanted to end with a um, personal story. I wanted to end with the first time, I guess what I would say is the beginning of my delving into not-self. One thing that i found, and I think that's important to understand, it's not like one day you're like, oh, I have this self, and then the next day you're like, oh, I don't have a self. This is great. Whoa. It's not like a eureka moment. It's actually like what what I describe it as is here's a big iceberg, and here's a little pick, and you're just kind of going. And as you practice, just little pieces of that iceberg are being knocked out. Oh, oh! I thought that was self. Not anymore. <laughs> but this still is self. <laughs> and what happens? What's in the middle of an iceberg, right? When you break through, it's it's nothing. It's just water. It's empty, right? So that's this. This self, right? That's this. And so I remember, um, it was at work, and I was I had a walking break. And I was just walking around my office doing my walking meditation. And I got out and I started walking and my mind wanted to sing. And I was like, okay, whatever. You can you know, sing. I, I've never been big on trying to force my mind into things because every time I tried to force, my mind fought back 10 times harder. Um, so I remember to this day, it was Sweet Caroline by Neil Diamond. And so my mind singing, Sweet Caroline. Da, da, da. And so I'm just focusing it's like i'm watching somebody else sing it's just i'm just observing and walking and then all of a sudden i noticed there was nothing there was nothing in my mind at all it was completely silent the thoughts had gone the music had gone it had all gone and it kept being gone for 1 minute 2 minutes 3 minutes 4 minutes and i'm kind of like what What's going on? But, but wait, wait, what, what who, who? I'm like going like, this is, this is me, right? This is me thinking, isn't it? But what were those? Hey. That kind of detachment, that was like my first rip into realizing, oh, those thoughts that arise are not me. I don't have to identify with those thoughts. Just because they arise doesn't mean they arise and they say an impulse arises and says, Go and punch that person in the face. Right? You don't have to accept that. And like a year or two later, I was here at a metta retreat and I was sitting where you guys are. And Bhante Sila is like, May all beings be well, happy, and peaceful. And I hate guided meditations. I've never been good with guided meditations. So I'm trying to bliss out for all beings. And I'm getting really agitated (laughs) while Bonte Sila is doing this thing. And then all of a sudden I had this vision of me getting up, coming up here and punching Bonte Sila in the face. (laughs) Right? And I thought to myself, well, one of the first things I thought after when I was reflecting on it is like, the average person who wasn't a meditator, what do you think they would have felt? Could you imagine the shame? Oh, my God, I, I had the thought of punching a monk in the face and all these things. Oh, no, 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 My reaction? I actually had to stop from bursting out laughing in the middle of the guided meditation. Right? Because I had had that experience already, that the, the Sweet Caroline experience. I had been practicing enough to realize, oh, okay, yeah, it's just a thought that arose. right? So I, I, it, I laughed at it. That was also the beginning of me realizing how much entertain, how how entertaining the mind is and the thoughts and all of that stuff that arises. It's the best entertainment. The mind is crazy. <laughs> but so, so that arose. And I was, and, and I was laughing. And I, and I have such fond memories of that. I use it now as, you know, years later, now that I share Dhamma, I use it as an you know, uh, example. Right? Me getting up. And I love Bhante Sila. I have so much metta for Bhante Sila. Um, he was such an important part of my early days at Babbana and things. But I remember vividly that image because my, my mind was like, okay, how are we gonna end it? This is how we're gonna end it. Boom! <laughs> right? So this is so you start to understand, okay, I don't have to identify with that. This thought that is arisen, this mind state that's arisen. Right? And so The more you practice, the more you delve deeper into your mind. You start to see these all these processes, all this stuff. Oh, you know, so anger arises, and you know, it's not like something arises. You're not repressing it. You're not denying that it exists. That's not what you're doing. But you're understanding, okay, this is arises, but I don't need to get wrapped up in this. I don't need to accept this as me, as mine, right? And actually, that's a freedom. That's so peaceful. It's a oh. Oh man. I, don't, I mean, I don't, I don't have to be tied down by this. But interestingly enough, years later, the last couple of years, this is where dependent origination comes in, because as I've been delving into dependent origination, you know, gaining insights into it, I realize, oh wait, you know those thought, all those thoughts and all that stuff that arises unbidden, you don't have to identify it as yours. that's true. But you actually did create them. You set the groundwork for them to arise. So a thought arises, you like it, you get wrapped up in it, you feed it, you papancha it, and then you set, it's like pushing a kid on a swing. You push it, and it goes forward and it has energy, and it comes back around, and it comes back into your mind again. And you like it, and you push it further, and it comes back around. So you actually keep feeding it, and then it grows. right? And, it gets, and that's how actually you are creating your mind. Right? So then you, once you realize, the first step is to realize, okay, this is, I don't have to accept this is mine. I don't have to allow it to have power over me. And then you realize, okay, now I have to set the groundwork for this to go away or for this to have less power and for me to develop this right effort, right? Abandoning unskillful, unwholesome qualities, developing skillful, wholesome qualities. Okay? So this is, this is this kind of intersection between not self-independent origination, that I can tell from my own experience, of first realizing that what's coming into your mind, and that's not to say, listen, there's still something, there's a lot of things in there that I still consider as self. I can say I don't, but then when the chip hits the fan, when when I have lots of pain, it's myself, (laughs) right? Because I haven't gotten there yet. I haven't fully, uh, I haven't reached that. But there are some things I realize, oh, okay, no, it's not me. I don't have to accept this, Right? It's it's, so, it's that experience is so important because it's not like you can be like, you know, the pains and you're like, this is not myself, this is not me, this is not myself, this is not me, this is not myself. When is this pain going to go away? This is not myself, this is not me, right? Like repeating the words is not actually going to help you, right? But being able, practicing, developing your mindfulness, developing your samatha, seeing deeply, that develops insights and then you can understand, okay. This is painful, you know. But I don't have to, you know, get wrapped up in it. And then you start to actually realize that pain is—I would say probably—you you mentally add forty to fifty percent extra to whatever pain you experience. When you have the experience of experiencing pain without all the extra mental junk, it's actually not as bad as <laughs> you know as as it was initially, right? Because you've been able to. Okay, this is not i I've, I've you've been able to detach, you're investigating, and you're not wrapped up in this oh, this is my pain and this is my leg and this is this and this is that. All of that is gone. It's just simply pain. And then you can reflect on it and then deal with it and do you know, do whatever you need to do. That doesn't mean you'd be like, Oh, this is just pain and you're just like walking around and your body's falling apart. No, you have to take care of things and stuff like that, but you the the mental attachment, the mental leash that you have to that pain has been severed, at least temporarily. So, now let me end with some quotes. The first. The noble ones have seen as happiness the ceasing of identity. This view of those who clearly see runs counter to the entire world. What others speak of as happiness, the noble ones say is suffering. What others speak of as as suffering, the noble ones know as bliss. It's a wonderful quote, huh? And now this is the end of the Sutta. The five aggregates are truly burdens. The burden carrier is the person. Taking up the burden is suffering in the world. Laying the burden down is blissful. Having laid down the heavy burden without taking up another burden, having drawn out craving at its root, one is free. Okay, friends. So that is my talk on Anatta. And uh, we can, uh, if you have any questions, you can put them in the box and we'll answer them at 7. And uh, take a break and come back to meditate. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Now practice laying down the burden. <laughs>